From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is on an adventure. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deckett. Most importantly, you are you. Hopefully, you are here. Hopefully. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today's episode dives into uh, a bit of true crime, right? Yeah. As it's so popularly called nowadays. You know, I was discussing this with my wife. I think that most conspiracies, at least at the heart, are true crime stories. At least uh, there's some element of crime generally somewhere within them. A cover-up, an attempt at secrecy, right? Mm -hmm. To conspire. Mm -hmm. And the etymology of conspiracy and conspire to breathe together in secret. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think think we do a a true crime show here. (laughs) <laughs> we have we've certainly we haven't been limited to true crime yeah. but but uh I think there's some sand to it a lot of the cases that we have found or a lot of the phenomenon we have investigated can be traced back to um uh, when I say mundane I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing it but earthly mundane terrestrial crimes greed yeah. you know anger lust gluttony all the hits Oh, the sins. All the sins. So we should also say at the top, I am very excited about some stuff we have coming up. I, I mentioned, I believe off air, about a very interesting story I found from folklore that also interacts or intertwines rather with true crime. Okay. And uh, that that folklore stuff is going to get dark so stay tuned for that in a few weeks. But for now, today's episode, uh, we are traveling through the power of the mind to Texas, to South Texas, to a town called Laredo. And Laredo is going to be fascinating for anyone who is not familiar with the area and for anyone who's not from the states even. And that's because borders – Despite all the hubbub you hear in the news, borders historically have not been sharply demarcated things. Borders sort of slide into one another, right? And the first borders were all terrestrial obstacles, impassable mountain ranges, you know, um, um, unfordable rivers or gigantic oceans or deserts where nothing could grow. Yeah, essentially everything on this side of whatever this unsurmountable thing is, is one place and on the other, it's the other. Yeah, absolutely. But if you look at Laredo, Texas, Mm -hmm. uh, and then you look at Nuevo Laredo, which is immediately across the border, like it it looks like almost a city in two or a town in two. Yeah, it looks like a city with a river that bisects it. Exactly. The Rio Grande, right? Exactly. So this is a great point because nowadays, increasingly, borders are politically demarcated, right? One of the the, um, incredibly effective and entirely immoral, I would say evil strategies that European powers used 
to subjugate native peoples on the African continent was the creation of political borders. So let us take a look, uh, the European forces would say, at the natural demarcations people have made. For thousands of thousands of years, this community or this tribe or, or this nation lived here. Well, let's bisect it. So now they live in, in, in three different areas and they can't gather as easily. It's, um, <laughs> it's a predecessor of gerrymandering, but a, a much more brutal one. Yeah, I see that. With the, uh, with the effect being, of course, the removal of power from the people. And this means that in terms of social impact, borders, whether they're based on an insurmountable obstacle or whether they're based on the political aims of the people drawing the maps, uh, they still have very, very powerful effects on the people who live in the area. And the southern border between the United States of America and Mexico has been in the domestic and international news for some time now, for for a couple of years, really. It was a campaign slogan uh, from the Trump administration that launched this into um, the, the zone of international media. And as we record this, uh, the sitting president issued a national emergency dealing with border security? Yes, that is correct. Uh, declared a national emergency when Congress rejected the executive branch's uh, initial request for money to build a wall, a physical barrier. Physical barriers already exist at different points along the border, but this pitch was for the construction of a contiguous barrier of some sort. What would that barrier be exactly? That sort of changes depending on the news cycle. You know, yeah. But when you hear about the southern border between the United States and Mexico nowadays, you're primarily going to hear about that ongoing debate: should the U.S. build or extend the existing physical barriers across the span of the border? If so, who should pay for this? You know, and what would be what would the benefits, if any, be? What would the consequences, if any, be? you will hear widely varying and wildly varying ideas and takes on this whenever you tune into the news or uh, whatever podcast you listen to. Today's episode is not about that wall, not about that physical barrier, nor is it about the debate involved. But it is physically where we are. It is physically where we are, right? You see, folks, there has been a ton of media coverage and there's been a ton of reporting about crime or the lack of crime along this very border. And today's story does concern crime, but perhaps not the way some of us might initially assume. So we said we're in Laredo. Where's Laredo, Matt? What can you tell us about Laredo? What is this what is this thing? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's in it's in southern Texas. It's uh, the seat of Webb County there. It's uh, immediately on the, the Rio Grande as we discussed. The Rio Grande separates it from New Laredo, which is on the Mexican uh, side of the border. And it's about 240 kilometers southwest of San Antonio. That's your biggest uh, landmark of sorts or I guess city mark. Um, and it's, it's about 150 miles. Yeah, yes, roughly. And it's, you know, 
it's one of the most important, one of the principal boarding border crossings that exist between Mexico and and Texas, and specifically from to get from Mexico into Texas. And that's a legal border crossing. Correct. Okay. A, a legal border yes, crossing. Yes. Legal border crossing. <laughs> yes. Oh man, it's so red leather, yellow leather, right? <laughs> yes. For all the theater kids in the audience today. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the the human beings that are there. So as of 2017, the population of Laredo was estimated to be about 260,000, almost 261,000. Uh, the population is roughly 95, 95.6% Hispanic or Latino. And this town, this city is ranked one of the least ethnically diverse cities in the entire country. And – Quick update, I dug into that a little bit more. It is the... It is the one, top of the, the bullet. The least ethnically diverse, which is another way of saying the most homogenous mm-hmm. in terms of ethnicity uh, area in the nation. Wow. Which is which is pretty nuts because the United States has a lot of pockets yes. of population, right? Yes. But often these will occur in areas where... They're a, they're part of a city that is composed of other pockets. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's I would say that very much describes Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. The city of pockets. Sure. And Atlanta is uh, more integrated than many other cities mm-hmm. uh, here in the modern day. But Laredo does have uh, a population of more than, as you said, 95 percent Hispanic or Latino identifying people. Mm-hmm. And for some some people, this would be indicative of uh, the the point we made earlier that borders tend to be gray graying areas. Yes. you know what I mean. Yes, like often people on either side of a border will speak the same language. Sure, and we'll have a lot of the same customs. You know what I mean? On the especially if it's a political border. It's dividing an area that already existed without the line marked through it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and especially if that border is between two countries like the United States and Mexico that for century or at least decades, we've had uh, trade deals where businesses in mm-hmm. along that border are also going across that border constantly and all the time. Um, when you just think about the the population that actually lives on one side or exists on one side for a large amount of their day, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that that area becomes even grayer. Yeah, yeah, and this is not solely a U.S. Mexico phenomenon. You know, no, there not are at all. plenty of people who live in the U.S. work in Canada. Yeah, oh, yeah. vice versa. Uh, think about the the EU. I was yeah. That's <laughs> that's one of the primo examples for sure because. Of the way that the EU travel and residency laws work, it's completely normal to – and also the proximity of the countries. It's completely normal to wake up in one country where you live and then go work in another one and, man, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe stop and see your your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your significant other in a third country <laughs> just on the way home. All the time. I, I Paul, mean, Paul has done that, I think. I mean, well, that's the mission control life. We yeah, don't wanna, man. We don't want to compromise that, but we can envy it. (laughs) So so with this idea of borders, here in the U.S., we encounter concerns about crime, usually concerns about 
smuggling of one sort or another, drugs, people, uh, or we hear things about violent crime, robberies, gang activity, murder, assault. At least that's reported and then becomes a uh, a news a newsworthy story at least for a few hours. Right. If it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. And one of the concerns that often crops up when we talk about crime at any international border is going to be um, the concern of how overblown or how ignored a phenomenon is. Mm-hmm. Is there a ton of crime that's being unreported? Is there a dearth of crime or a lack of crime uh, with, that's being overreported? You know, mm-hmm. one murder occur and then that murder leads the news for four months. Those are those are definitely, I would say, the viewpoints from which a lot of times people form an opinion mm-hmm. about crime at borders. Yeah, yeah. Because realistically, most people don't have time to take a week off, drive down or fly down to the border and watch themselves. You know, you have to you have to find news sources or reporting sources that you can trust. Or, or even to take the time just to do some research from a computer. Oh, yeah. Like, like what we do on the show, you sit down and, and you know, research and mm. write about it. Nobody has time for that unless you're getting paid for it. <laughs> That's not a bad point. It's It's tough but fair. Yeah. It's tough but fair. So let's talk about crime in Laredo. From what we found, we went straight to the official government statistics so past the pundit headlines and so on. And what we found is that over the past nine years or so, uh, crime in Laredo has dropped significantly. It has not escalated. One of the pitches that you'll hear for the construction of, um, of more physical barriers or a contiguous physical barrier is uh, it's not designed to be a political Argument. It's designed to be an argument about security. And the idea here is that A, crime is increasing and that B, uh, some sort of physical barrier will help reduce or mitigate that increase. Mm-hmm. That's just the argument as it's laid out. ton of people agree with it. ton of people disagree with it. That's the argument. It couldn't. It couldn't be more polar. <laughs> it could not be more polar. That's that's an excellent observation. However, the assumptions of that argument fall a little bit short in Laredo because in this town, homicide cases dropped thirty six percent from two thousand nine to twenty seventeen. Robbery declined forty seven percent, and aggravated assault dropped. 30%. This is according to the Laredo Police Department's annual report in 2017. So crime appears to, at least in several key areas, be going down in Laredo rather than escalating. But there's something else at play here. It's it's not just everybody pulling an REM shiny happy people thing. You know, everybody didn't just suddenly become friends. Yeah. Most violent crime rates have dropped by double digits, but sexual offense cases have increased by 48 percent during that same nine-year span from 2009 to 2017. So other stuff dropped by a third, in some cases almost halved, but this stuff increased 
by almost 50%. Yeah, that's um uh, that's a tough statistic. Mm-hmm. I certainly wonder why. Um and we're not here to analyze that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is like it's a terrible reality. It's a terrible reality and of course the, you could make arguments uh, saying that Maybe there's something wonky in the way it's reported. Of course. We do know that in this country, as unfortunately is the case in many other countries, there are a lot of homicides that go unreported. Right? True. In this case, we see that there's an anomalous spike. Everything else is going down. This thing is spiking. Let's look at murder. Murder specifically. Murder is dropped, but it's still occurring and you can find some fairly robust murder statistics in Laredo on a website called city-data.com. And it this compiles all of the murders, sexual assaults, robberies, burglaries, car thefts, non-car thefts, arson, and so on uh, across the town, across Laredo and Nuevo Laredo as well. So let's let's think about who these murderers are or who these criminals are. Should we give some name like some numbers as to some of these yeah. dates? Oh yeah, yeah. Just to just to have so everyone understands. So if we're looking we're looking at this table that goes from 2002 until 2016. The if we're just looking at murders, the lowest number you're going to find between those dates occurred in 2013, at least the reported ones. And there were only three murders that year. Then if – let's see, a max would be 2003, which is 29 murders in that year. So those numbers are fairly low. I mean Mm -hmm. they seem very low. Um, We don't have a really good thing to like compare it to. But over – you know, in a a big city, there are significantly more murders than Mm -hmm. that generally on average per year. Um, So I guess the big question is – who are the people in Laredo and New Laredo who are killing other humans? Right, right. Who are these murderers? Now, we wouldn't be wrong if we were listening to this and we just shrugged and said, well, you know, unfortunately, the usual gangs, maybe jilted lovers in crimes of passion or employees, who, or former employees rather, uh, maybe drug dealers, human traffickers, you know. Criminals, sleazebags, scum. There are always elements of these criminals in the mix. But Laredo, it turns out, may have birthed something else, something that is fortunately much less common, something that is in many ways more dangerous and definitely um, definitely more alien. Yes. What happened in Laredo that caused a man who's hired to protect the border but instead used that area as his personal hunting ground? We'll have the answer after a word from our sponsor. Here's where it gets crazy. Juan David Ortiz was a veteran of the U.S. Navy. He was married with children and held a bachelor's degree from the American Military University and a master's degree from St. Mary's Academy in Texas. 
After leaving the Navy, Ortiz finds work for the U.S. Border Patrol, and he spends 10 years there functioning as an intelligence operator or an intelligence officer. As an intelligence officer, Ortiz was well aware of Laredo's seedy underbelly, the sex workers, the drug dealers, the drug addicts, the criminals, and the smugglers, everyone making a living on the wrong side of the law for one reason or another. And somewhere along the way, he became a killer. So let's go to the night of September 15th, 2018. There's an unidentified woman who was, at the time, she was at least functioning as a sex worker um, on that night. And she met up with a man that she knew of, at least, as David. David. And she was feeling uneasy about um, deciding to, I guess, hang with David or uh, go on a date with David or whatever. And... There were two other sex workers that she knew of that – at least that she was aware of had mm-hmm. been recently killed. And one of those people was her personal friend named Melissa, Melissa Ramirez. Mm-hmm. Now, this man named David or at least that is called David and this unidentified woman had already spent some time at the man's house and this is like I guess over time. They had been there for a little while and she began to get increasingly creeped out by this man and she was uh, becoming frightened by some of his actions. He was taking some of his words and especially when she mentioned her friend Melissa who had recently been killed. He had reacted so strangely in fact, she later told authorities and the situation had grown so tense during the conversation that she vomited in the front yard of the house before they went back into the truck and left ostensibly to go to a gas station. As this woman, who remains unidentified at the time of recording, later recounted to police, the thought of Melissa stayed on her mind. It's fair to say it haunted her. Mm -hmm. And she kept bringing up her dead friend. In response, suddenly, this man, this David, pulled out a gun and grabbed the woman by her shirt. Luckily, I think her fight or flight reflexes Mm -hmm. were already pretty amped up at this point. She manages to jump out of the vehicle and her shirt rips from her body during the process. David screeches off. He flees the scene and the woman finds a state trooper at a nearby gas station. She tells the trooper what happened and then she is also able to tell law enforcement the location of this David's home. David who would later be identified as Juan David Ortiz, hid out in a hotel parking lot after fleeing officers attempting to apprehend him. He was found and arrested at 2.30 a.m. And here's the thing. David was arrested, and shortly after he was arrested, he began spilling the beans, essentially just telling all. And he was confessing to very specific things. And when he he talked about his motivations of why he was doing what he was doing, which we're going to get into here in a moment, but his at least stated motivation was that he wanted to, quote, clean up the city. And he said that he had, in fact, killed this unidentified woman's friend, Melissa. He, uh, He admitted that he did that on the 3rd of September in that year, 2018. But that wasn't all. 
he also confessed that he had committed more than just that one murder. That's right. According to Webb County District Attorney Isidro Alanis, Ortiz saw himself somewhat as a vigilante. Sex workers, he said, were the scum of the earth, and he wanted to clean the streets. He believed he was doing a service for the city by committing these murders. He argued that law enforcement was not doing enough to curb what uh, to curb the sex trade Jeez. as he saw it, which is which acquires a new complication when we consider that circumstantial evidence indicates Ortiz wasn't just socially familiar with several of these workers, several of these victims. Uh, he had been sexually involved yeah. with at least one. And he did, you know, he did confess to these. They were murdered in very similar ways. Furthermore, during his descriptions uh, of the the murders and during his arrest and during his confession, he was described as cool, emotionless, almost robotic. But let's go back to that in a moment. Okay. First, maybe we should talk about who these victims are. We mentioned Melissa Ramirez. Yes. So in total, Ortiz is suspected of killing four. And uh, one kidnapping, that would that would be the uh, unidentified woman. Mm -hmm. Then it's important to talk about the time frame here when you're talking about a serial killer or spree killer or, you know, the differences that we've covered in several episodes over the course of the years here. Um, but all of the murders that at least uh, David Ortiz is – Juan David Ortiz is accused of or was accused of, they they happen from September 3rd to to September 15th of the same month. So uh, not much of a cooling down period there between these killings, mm -hmm. um, four killings in that time span. So let's go to the first victim that we've discussed a tiny bit, Melissa Ramirez. She was 29 years old when she died. She was killed on the 3rd of September 2018. She was taken to Jeffrey's Road in the area and she was shot in the head. And then on the 13th of September, Claudine Ann Lira, 42 years old, was murdered. She was taken to U.S. 83 and Spur Road 255 on September 13th, and she was shot. She did reach the hospital. She died shortly after she reached the hospital as a result of the gunshot wounds. Essentially, she was shot and left for dead. Yeah. And then we have Griselda Alicia Hernandez Cantu. She was 35 when she died and she was killed on the 15th of September 2018. She was, uh, she was shot, but according to coroners, she died due to blunt force trauma. And so shot and then battered. Yes. And the last identified victim at this point is Umberto Janelle Enriquez Ortiz, a 28-year-old, killed on the same day as Griselda on 15th of September 2018, also uh, through a shot to the head. This victim was a trans woman, identified as such. As far as authorities can tell at this time, or as far as what's been made publicly available about these confessions, that didn't that didn't play into the factor. He was hunting and killing specifically people based on their occupation. Yes. So this leads us to ask, 
what else is out there? It is not unreasonable to assume that Ortiz may have committed other murders, but it seems odd that he would not have confessed to these as well while admitting to the other four. There's also a tricky thing that happens sometimes with serial murder confessions. Uh, we, we've seen this in a couple of other earlier serial killer cases, which is if law enforcement has a bunch of open or cold cases they want to resolve, they – I say they like they're monolithic. Yeah. Some departments have in the past uh, offered a prisoner different perks, you know, better food, better housing, et cetera, if they will also uh, cop to these other unsolved cases. It's a way to clear the books. Yeah. It's incredibly unethical. Uh, and but, probably uncommon. And probably uncommon. Thankfully so. It's happened before. So it's not crazy to assume that this could happen again or even is happening now in a totally different unrelated case. In the case of Ortiz, it seems that he did do it quite possibly with his service weapon and he confessed to every murder he did. And so this leads us to two things. The first thing is, was there a serial killer active on the U.S.-Mexico border? Uh, this has been the, uh, one of those rumors that's cropped up in years past, you know. Uh, in this case, yes. Yes, there was uh, operating for a very short amount of time as far as we know, just in September of 2018 before he's thankfully apprehended. But some of us will call earlier episodes when we talked about the difference between a spree killer and a serial killer. Yes. Serial killers, as I think you pointed out earlier, Matt – usually have some sort of cooling down period, it's called. So whatever that specific MO is, they they um, commit a murder using that specific, you know, ritualistic set of circumstances or approach, and then they stop for anywhere from, you know, days to months, in some cases years, and then they rinse and repeat the same behavior. This guy had a uh, in increasingly short interval of cooling down, right? Yeah. From the 3rd of September to the 13th and then just two days to the 15th and then twice on the 15th. So this could – this was building. Oh, yeah. You can you can definitely see that. And again, it – thank goodness he was caught when <laughs> he was because you can only imagine where that could have gone. As, right. it was, as it was ramping up like that. Mm -hmm. So the people working in law enforcement who apprehended and arrested him, um, again, all thanks to the quick thinking of this unidentified fifth person, um, they have literally saved lives. Oh, yeah. They've literally saved lives. So it would seem that although immense human tragedy and loss has occurred here, there is, if not a happy ending, something a little bit more satisfactory, right? The, we found the monster. The monster was stopped. Yeah, and, again, and again, I know legally we're required to say the alleged murderer because the guy's not gone to court yet. Yeah. He's not yeah. been convicted of a crime yet, uh, but he did confess. Yeah, Still, it's oh, hard to argue with a confession, but we know that there are such things as coerced confessions. That's true too. That is a very real thing. But it would be a massive 
surprise if it turned out that he was not, in fact, the person who committed these murders. I would agree. However, there's not there's not a satisfactory ending to this. No. This is one wrinkle, right? Yeah. In, in well, a continuing story. Yeah, one David Ortiz, you know, is an extreme version of some of the violence and some of the patterns of behavior that have been noticed uh, in border areas. Right. This is a chapter of a story and it is not the first chapter. It is not the last. You see, Ortiz is not the only murderer who operated on the border. He wasn't even the only murderer who worked on the force. On the border patrol, yeah. And we'll get to that after a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Let's jump to a few months prior to when Juan David Ortiz was arrested. Let's go to June of 2018. In that month of last year, another border agent, Ronald Anthony Burgos Aviles, was indicted on two counts of capital murder for allegedly killing his 27-year-old lover, I guess, at the time, and their 20-month-year-old son. Um, And prosecutors are currently seeking the death penalty in his case. As well as Ortiz's, yeah. Exactly. There are fewer details available here, partially because the judge presiding over this case issued a gag order at the defendant's request. This prevents all involved parties from discussing the case publicly. You can still, if you're a journalist or an interested person Mm -hmm. uh, involved in the case, you can still go to public hearings. Those aren't closed down. But a gag order means that prosecutors, the attorneys for the defense, witnesses, police and other officers of the court – uh, the bailiff, the stenographer, etc. Uh, anyone with ties to the investigation cannot discuss, summarize, or comment on the case in any way. So this case is nascent. It's still developing. It has not yet completed its passage through the legal system. So that that's one example. But you will see other people arguing that the these two – Terrible and tragic examples are part of a bigger story. The Texas Observer recently wrote an article called The Border Patrol Serial Killer is Part of a Long Troubled History. This is by uh, journalist Gus Bova. And what we find is that – now, the the Laredo sector of Border Patrol alone uh, hosts around 1,700 of the 20,000 total Border Patrol agents – And according to this article, Ortiz was at least the fourth patrolman to be arrested this year. The other cases include Burgos Aviles, who we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, another another officer who allegedly sexually assaulted a woman after threatening her with deportation, another agent who has not been identified nor arrested, shot and killed an unarmed 20-year-old Guatemalan woman in May, and this had been dubbed a series of very tragic coincidences. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe a, a pattern of abuse within the law enforcement. But that's probably not it. It's just it, it, that's what it appears to be maybe. Right. And it goes back to the bad apple argument because mm-hmm. we're, of course, not – people who work in law enforcement go outside every day and risk their lives. Yes. So we're not in any way – 
casting aspersion on that. The question is more about accountability in in these cases, you know, and what's happening. From 2005 to 2012, U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents were arrested over 2,000 times for misconduct. Things like not all murder. Yeah. Still things that were against law, drunk driving, domestic violence. Things you'd lose your job for. Mm Mm-hmm. And CPB, Customs and Border Protection, includes Border Patrol and Customs agents. So it's a larger pool, Mm -hmm. right? A 2013 Government Commission report found that Border Patrol agencies regularly stepped in the paths of cars to justify firing at drivers as well as shooting at people throwing rocks, including teenagers on the Mexican side of the border. Mm. Yeah, I remember hearing about a few of those occurrences in the the news. Mm -hmm. That's rough. Um, hmm. Now, there's already been widespread speculation that Ortiz might have other victims that have yet to be publicly identified or conclusively linked to him. And as we said before, it's weird. It's not impossible, but it's weird that he would readily confess to four murders, a fifth kidnapping, and somehow keep the other stuff out of the news. Yeah. There's definitely more to this story. Um We've already noted that according to the U.S. legal system, he's still innocent. He's being tried for crimes, but until he's convicted, he can't legally be called a confirmed serial killer. But we have to ask, is there more to the story? Are there murders occurring along the border that are being unreported? And if so, uh, who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators, right? And And how can we be be sure that – they're all being found. Like all of the victims are being even are even known to be missing. Mm-hmm. There's such potential on a, in a border for someone who may be a part of trafficking or either uh, willingly or unwillingly that ends up just a victim and never found. It's it's pretty terrifying. Right. These are tough questions. In many cases, unfortunately, they may be unanswerable because Mm -hmm. people can fall through the cracks. You know, um, someone who is – someone who is attempting to cross a border illegally may be betrayed by the forces that said they would get them over safely and their bodies might never be discovered or when discovered, not identified. Yeah. And what we have for today's episode then is is not a happy ending other than – you know, a, a budding serial killer yeah. was a newly active serial killer was apprehended, thankfully, right? But this is a small snapshot into what may be a larger uh, systemic problem. And if it is a larger systemic problem, if it's not a case of a few bad apples or, or something like that, then what is the solution? Does a solution exist? We'd like to hear from you. You can let us know on Instagram, let us know on Facebook, let us know on Twitter. Uh, additionally, tell us about the tell us about the crimes in your neck of the woods, whether yeah. in the U.S. or your home country, or just a crime you've heard of that you believe has been underreported. Tell us what happened and why you think it's not getting more coverage. Absolutely, please, please write to us. Just give, give us your experience, if you if you will, if you want to, because uh, we would like to learn along with you, um, and and learn from your experience. Um, just just before we kind of like do the full wrap up here, I just want to point out something that the Texas Observer pointed out, um, and that is the number of staff 
working on border patrol, like officially at least, and how it's increased from like in the past 19 years, or I guess they have statistics for the past 17 years as of two years ago, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So 2000 to 2017. And just showing that it was around 9,200 uh, people officially staffing the United States border in the year 2000. Um, and that grew all the way up to 17,500 roughly in 2008 over the course of eight years. So it doubled almost. Then uh, the next year, 2009, it jumped up to the 20,000 range and it's kind of stayed between uh, let's say 19,000 and 2150 uh, over the course from 2008 to 2017. Just to show that you're – that's a lot of people. If you mm -hmm. think about a couple of thousand human beings that you're vetting and bringing in to be police officers essentially and border patrol agents – and the Texas Observer just makes the point that it's that kind of growth over that amount of time mm -hmm. seems to be too rapid in order to fully vet all of the humans that you're hiring. Yeah, um, so maybe there just needs to be a more in-depth vetting process. Uh, who knows? And that's one of the arguments you'll probably hear. And you may have heard that one. Um, but again, sometimes you just can't catch that anomaly because it's operating – essentially uh, right in front of your eyes and you just don't realize it. Right. Or in the case of um, the kind of festering mental condition that could lead someone to become an active serial killer, it may be rotting away internally. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, exactly. All right. Whew. So write to us or call us. Uh, you, If you call us, you can leave a message and it might get on the show and uh, we would love to hear your <laughs> your stories and then respond to them in an episode in the future. So call us. We are 1-833-STDWYTK. That's just an acronym for stuff they don't want you to know. And uh, do that. If you don't want to do that, send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. <laughs>